Father God, we pray um, that you would take uh, the opportunity that we have given you this morning uh, by creating this house of worship and ministry. We pray that you would fill it with your presence. We pray that you would change us all a bit before we go. We pray that you would alleviate hearts, that you would heal bodies, that you would bring the kingdom, and that your will would be manifest here. We incline ourselves toward you today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Warm-up question. Everybody roll your shoulders, crack your neck, massage your temples. Uh, Who here has got strife in your life? Anybody got strife in your life? Anyone? Anyone? Strife? A little little bit? All right. Uh, So let me ask a big question about the strife in your life. Um, Who's to blame? Who's, who's to blame? Them? Them, yeah. They are, you know, yeah. Who's, who's to blame? Them? Is that, that pretty much we all, th- good. All right, we're all on the same page. Uh, we have problems and it's their fault. Uh, follow-up question. Have you ever taken responsibility for something that wasn't your fault? On purpose? I'm not saying you've been blamed for something you didn't do. That's not what today's sermon's about. Um, have you ever taken responsibility for something uh, for which you technically did not have the blame? Yeah? Um, can you think of something? Can you think of something right now? You can. Just go ahead and, and, and fix that in your mind. It might be helpful uh, going forward. Um, that Taking responsibility for something that wasn't your fault, assuming responsibility to fix a situation uh, that, uh, that needed fixing, even though it, it wasn't your fault, I mean, that's, that's a hard thing to do. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's humanly hard. It, it brings out in us all sorts of problematic emotions um, very few humans handle injustice well. It's, it outrages us. There's a lot of outrage in the culture. I don't know. There's a lot of blame casting and finger pointing around us. You think that's true? And I think it's always been true in human societies. Uh, the blame game is a really big deal. And and, and sometimes I think that gets in the way of the responsibility game because, you know, there's a, assigning blame and then there's assuming responsibility. And those are two very different things in life. I remember uh, pretty crisply uh, what I think was my first lesson in the difference between blame and responsibility. And it was a tough lesson. Uh, And it was in third grade. And I still remember it because that's how much it impacted me. Uh, Here's what the deal was. In third grade, I was out on the playground uh, one school day at recess. Do you remember recess? Every day needs recess, but that's not what today's sermon is about. I was out on recess, and I was was, uh, leaning against the, uh, you know, the jungle gym, uh, just sort of just sort of chilling and being cool like I was in third grade. Uh, and uh, a buddy of mine ran up to me and said, uh, Jordan, uh, the third grade versus the fourth grade in a game of keep away, we need you. 
right? So, and I, and I looked uh, on the big field, and there were two masses of kids at play, and there was, I could tell there was some object in the center, and, you know, my third grade pride came out. And it's like, yeah, we're going to take those fourth graders down. Uh, and so I got off of uh, the jungle gym, and I, and I ran into the fray, third grade against fourth grade, you know, masses of kids. And I couldn't even tell uh, what, the, what the object was. And I remember I ran around for two or three minutes max, and then I thought, this is stupid. I mean, there are like too many kids in this game. And, you know, it looks like they were playing, you know, with a hat, uh, somebody's hat. And, and, and I just shrugged my shoulders and I gave up and I, and I went and I, I sat back down on the jungle gym. Uh, that was that. And then later on that day, the principal comes on the loudspeaker and makes a general school announcement and says, today uh, at, at morning recess, a child's baseball cap was destroyed in a game of keep away. And everybody who played uh, is responsible for a share of the replacement price uh, of, that, of that hat. And so uh, immediately everybody started pointing fingers. Well, he was playing, he was playing, he was playing. And, and, and I was in Mrs. Mosinger's uh, third grade class. And so, you know, about eight or ten kids from Mrs. Mosinger's class got up and marched to the principal's office. Uh, but I wasn't called out. Uh, because I was on the periphery of the game and I only played for two minutes and I never touched the hat. But I had a moral dilemma there. It was like, well, I mean, I, I, I kind of participated, sort of, you know, in a way. I didn't actually know what was going on. I certainly didn't destroy the hat. I don't even know, you know, whose hat it was. So after thinking about this for a few minutes, I walked up to Mrs. Mosinger's uh, desk and I said, I think I should probably go to the principal's office too. Come on, snaps for little, little third grade, very moral pastor dude. I mean, that, that was some big time morality right there. Uh, and, and, uh, and she said, well, okay, you better get there. So by the time I got to the principal's office, everybody else was gone. So I got a one-on-one with the principal, oh, just lovely, just lovely. And then I was marched back. And, and uh, I remember when I came back in, Mrs. Mosinger was, was standing by the door. And she looked at me and said, you were one of the good ones. <clears throat> you know? And then uh, Jeff Watson, who was one of my friends in the class, uh, came patting me on the shoulder and says, that's okay, Jordan, now you're one of us. You're one, you're one, of, you're one of the bad ones. Like, you know? And then I had to take a note home to my grandmother. I remember uh, they divvied up the cost, and, and my share was 35 cents to replace this. <laughs> this baseball cap, you know, that was like 75 cents uh, in today's money. Um, It was a terrible experience for me. Like, you know, I had to sit out recess the next day. I didn't get released. Um, And and I remember thinking this through at night, you know, processing it with with the Lord and thinking, uh, did I make a mistake? Because everybody thinks I'm bad now, and I was just trying to be good. Um, and it wasn't really my fault, and I wasn't really to blame, but I can't say that now, and, you know, I kind of went through this thing. And a short while later, as it turned out in my life, I had an eerily similar situation in which I, I, I was with uh, another, another kid and, uh, in a remote place, 
um, with some abandoned houses, and, and he broke the windows in the houses just for sport. He had like a BB gun. And I didn't, but later it was discovered. And, uh, and some people approached both, both uh, him and me and, and said, you know, do you know uh, the story on the broken windows? And I, I clammed up. I didn't say anything because I had learned responsibility does not pay. <laughs> Uh, virtue gets judged uh, negatively. So not a triumphant uh, season in my life, but I know eventually I, I worked it out a little bit, I guess. Uh, point being, I mean, we learn very early the power of blame, and we learn very early the problems with taking responsibility. And, and I don't think people outgrow that sort of stuff. We have an instinct to play the blame game really well. And in our society, the blame game is a very sophisticated competition, isn't it? It's a sophisticated competition in society at large. It's a sophisticated and problematic competition in your workplace. Whose responsibility? Well, who's to blame? It's a sophisticated sort of competition in marriages, in every family dynamic with kids, it's not my fault. He did it. She did it. And we are just sort of steeped in this. It's, it's really uh, the blame game, and most everybody is caught up in assigning blame for bad things as if blame and responsibility were linked, uh, but they're not linked. I, I, I think a lot about uh, what one has to do to go from kind of a normal life to going to an exceptional life. And, uh, and I'll tell you this, assuming responsibility for solving trouble is one of the biggest factors. If you are a person who assumes responsibility to fix situations, even when they're not your fault or totally your fault, you'll have an exceptional life. You'll get into some exceptional situations. And we are in a sermon series uh, on this fellow named David in the Bible, King David, uh, one of the most famous figures of all the Bible, certainly one of the most famous figures in the Old Testament. And uh, the thing that we're told about David at the very beginning of the story is that David is a man after God's own heart. There's something about David that just really reflects the heart of God. And even when David's just this little kid uh, taking care of his father's sheep in the field, God decides that he's going to anoint David as king, that this is a guy that he can trust, that this is a guy that he wants to, to glorify. Uh, and I think what we see in David uh, from the earliest days of his story is that he's the sort of fellow to take responsibility for things. Uh, we saw David do it in his battle with Goliath, right? I mean, he shows up at the front lines, and Goliath is defying the armies of Israel, and David is just, you know, he's a young punk. He's like one of the youngest guys there. He's not a warrior, but he takes responsibility for downing uh, Goliath, and he does it fairly well, comes up with a creative uh, solution. Uh, and we see the same sort of eagerness to assume responsibility in the rest of David's life as well. We know that David would be a king who wouldn't merely accept power, but who would eagerly take the responsibility that came with power. Because, as, as we learned from the Spider-Man movies, with great power, 
and if only we quoted Bible verses with the same facility. Yeah. Um, and the way that we know that, that David would accept the responsibility of power is because we always see him assume responsibility for fixing things, even when they're not his fault, and even when he wasn't the one with power uh, in the situation. Why? Well, because it's the right thing to do. And that's what our story is about today. You want to pull out your programs. You have some excerpts in there <clears throat> from First Samuel, First Samuel 21, 22. <clears throat> And uh, the scripture is going to also be up here on the big board, or you can follow along in your smartphone Bible, or uh, if you're really, really Christian, you can follow along in your hard copy Bible, and you get extra bounty points in heaven for that. Okay, so uh, where we left the story was that David is running from Saul. He's running for his life because Saul has been trying to murder him. Uh, and uh, so we pick up the story as David runs out into the outskirts, leaves the capital, and David went to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. Uh, Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Uh, Why is no one with you? So uh, David's on the run, and he stops in at uh, a worship center. At a church of sort, a place where there, there is a priest, he knows a guy named Ahimelech, and you know, when you're on the run, uh, you have to, uh, you know, use who you know, so he pays a visit to Ahimelech the priest. David answered Ahimelech the priest, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. So David invents a story. He said, well, I'm certainly not running for my life from King Saul. Um, The king has sent me on a mission, and David is a, a warrior of some repute. And the reason I'm alone is, well, I'm meeting my guys somewhere else you know, uh, but we're, uh, we're hungry, so how about some bread? There's always bread at the temple. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. So in every temple, there was some bread sort of set out uh, sort of before the Lord. It was sort of a sacrificial thing. And the deal was uh, that after a certain time has passed and the bread started to not be so fresh, then they would replace it with new bread, and then the priest would eat that bread. And that was part of the way that the priests made their living. They kind of got hand-me-down bread, hand-me-down food uh, from the sacrifices. Technically, uh, David wasn't supposed to eat this because he wasn't a priest and it was consecrated, um, but the priest kind of makes him a deal. It's like, well, you know, if your men have kept themselves from women, yeah, I guess that's consecration enough in these, in these days. So, uh, you know, you guys can, can share the bread. That's what's going on here. Uh, David kind of lies, and the priest is trying to find a way to uh, cut corners and, and help him. And David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. Uh, the men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy. Well, that's an interesting phrase. How much more so today? 
So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, and since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day, it was taken away. So, you know, small violations are happening here. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite. Uh, He would have been a foreigner. Uh, Edom was a land just to the south of Israel. Uh, But he was sort of in Saul's employ somehow. He was Saul's chief shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. So David's really spinning some tails here. I imagine Ahimelech is getting a wee bit suspicious. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistines, whom you killed in the valley of Elan, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind uh, the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. You know, it's a holy place, a temple, and that's where they kept the big national artifacts in those days. The sword of Goliath was a, a pretty uh, impressive souvenir. And the priest is like, well, I mean, you killed him, so I I guess you can take it. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. And David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Uh, Gath was the general area. When his brothers and his father's uh, household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him. And he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. Now, this fact is going to become more important uh, in later weeks as the story unfolds, but just put a pin in it and, and, and recognize it right now uh, that David is basically becoming, you know, Robin Hood uh, of the land. And all these discontented guys, all these outlaws and debtors are rallying around him uh, because he has uh, evidently a reputation of someone who, who is an outlaw. <laughs> uh, Saul is trying to kill him, uh, and he was trustworthy, you know, presumably. Um, and now we want to shift gears in the story. We go from what's going on with David back to King Saul and what's him. And Saul has gathered some people around him, uh, all of his officials, because he's upset that he has lost track of David. And he said to these guys, listen, men of Benjamin. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. So, so Saul has his own homies around him, the people in his own clan, the people he feels like he can trust. Will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. The son of Jesse is David, by the way. None of you is concerned about me or tells me uh, what my, that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. And Saul's a very insecure guy. He's being very petulant. He's kind of implicitly bribing his guys. You know, say, I'll give you promotions if you help me find David. And, and no, one's, no one loves me. Wah, wah. Uh, but Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub at Nob. So Doeg rats David out. Ahimelech, uh, so they go to Nob and, and they interview Ahimelech and, and Ahimelech, Ahimelech answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David, uh, the king's son-in-law, 
captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household. So Ahimelech doesn't, he doesn't know how much Saul hates David. It's like, what, why, why are you after David? I mean, he's the man. He's the, he's the national hero. He's the soldier among soldiers. And in saying that, I don't think Ahimelech is ingratiating himself to Saul very much, right? Ahimelech is, is just not up on current events. Uh, was that uh, day the first time I inquired of God for him, for David? Of course not. David, David visits the priests often. Uh, let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. Look, I was just doing my job. I was just, I was just giving a blessing to one of your soldiers. But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. Saul's just going nuts. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Well, good on them. The king then ordered Doeg, uh, the Edomite, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. They just wipe out an entire town because Saul is in a pissy mood. But one son of Himelech's a son of Ahitub named Abiathar, escaped and tried to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to this guy, David said to Abiathar, the lone survivor, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. So again, the context of all of that is David is fleeing for his life from Saul's murderous efforts. Saul is in the wrong about all of this stuff. It's a very high-stress time for David. And David shows up at the temple, and, and maybe because lying was expedient, or maybe because David just didn't want to evolve Ahimelech, you know, and just sort of keep him out of it. David lies to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech was tricked. Maybe Ahimelech knew that something was going on. It's sort of, it was a very weird situation. But, you know, David's, David sort of tricked him into helping. And that's a bad thing to do. Don't lie to priests. Don't lie to pastors. Just take a moment and discuss that among yourselves. You should always tell the truth to your pastor. Always tell the truth at church. That's really my point today. So, all right. On with more minor points. Uh, so David sort of tricks him, and then David moves on. Uh, he goes on uh, fleeing, ends up in a cave hiding, but not before Doeg, uh, this, this guy, spied him out. And then Doeg tattles to Saul, uh, not a great character, this Doeg. Uh, and then uh, 
When Ahimelech uh, faces Saul, he claims to have acted innocently enough. At worst, he was tricked. You know, Ahimelech basically tells the truth. Like, look, you know, as far as I know, David is, is a man in good standing in our nation. Uh, why are you mad at me? But Saul decides to kill him in anger, not just him. He wipes out the whole town. He kills the babies. He kills the kids. He kills the animals. I mean, it's just like you could not imagine a more murderous deed such that Paul, Saul's officials, his, his guys, won't even do the dirty work. Only Doeg will. Um, Saul kills all the related priests, wipes out the town, unbelievably vile. One survivor manages to get away, uh, Abiathar, and he flees to David, the only trustworthy guy he can think of. And now comes what I think is the point of this awful, awful story. How is David going to respond to this thing? How is David going to manage the situation practically and emotionally and spiritually? Because it is a loaded situation. A bunch of innocent people have just been killed, and David himself is under a death sentence, and they're living in a cave off the land. I mean, it's a crazy, crazy stressful situation. And I think the issue is that David has essentially just precipitated the death of a bunch of innocent people, including innocent children. David could at this moment collapse in self-recrimination because basically David tricks Ahimelech and it gets a whole bunch of people killed, hundreds of people killed. That's a bad day right there, right? That's, that's an occasion uh, for guilt, right there. And, and this story, you might remember, comes up in, in, in the Gospels. It's like, man, you think David was, was all that. You think he was great. Actually, David was a little loose with the truth sometimes. And, uh, you know, and he ended up getting hundreds of innocent people killed. So let's not whitewash David. David made mistakes like the rest of us. And he was in a very high-stress situation. So, you know, he, he made more, more than one mistake, no doubt. So, shame on David. Then again, Saul is a mass murderer. I mean, who has more blame in this situation? Did Saul really have to kill everyone in the town, including the kids and the animals? I mean, my gosh, is it worth even talking about David's little loose-with-the-truth indiscretion over and against, you know, Saul, who kills kids because he's in a bad mood and feels sorry for himself? I mean, who's the real villain here? I mean, clearly, it's Saul. And, and if I were David, I think I would maybe point that out in subsequent conversations. It's like, yeah, 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 you know, maybe I should have told this straight story, but, but come on. And there are emotional advantages to blaming Saul for the situation, particularly if the, if the alternative is to accept the blame for the death of a bunch of innocent people. I mean, if there were ever an occasion for the blame game, this is it right here. Like, my goodness. And maybe this is the moment where David finally says, enough is enough. People are rallying around me anyway. It's time to overthrow that SOB. We're going to take him down. Nobody kills infants on my watch. And that would be a a justifiable thing to do. He has been anointed king after all. Be totally justifiable. Plus, it would be emotionally convenient because you could sort of gloss over the fact that David's lie 
precipitated a chain of events that just got hundreds of people killed. Um, But rather than be crippled by self-guilt or get ferocious about blaming Saul, David does something different. David assumes responsibility for making the situation right, at least as best he can. He says, Doeg was there. I saw that guy. I knew he would be trouble. I knew it. So David admits his little mistake. He says, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. He admits his little mistake and never mentions Saul's big mistake, which tells you something about David's heart right there. I don't know. Maybe you think David's crazy, but he is trustworthy. He is a man who takes responsibility whenever he gets an opportunity. He doesn't freeze in guilt. He doesn't do that either. He doesn't blame Saul, and he doesn't really blame himself all that much. He just assumes responsibility. As David sees it, guilt is just a passing point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, I shouldn't have lied. Look, I'm going to take responsibility for you and uh, for anyone else in a similar situation. Instead of taking the battle to Saul... David takes responsibility unto himself. And as we'll see as the story progresses, this becomes David's policy going forward. Uh, Outlaws and debtors start to rally around him, and he puts together a band of warriors. And what they do, David and these guys, is they start roving the countryside and protecting Israel from the invading forces, from the Philistines and the other enemies of God's people. David kind of becomes sort of a, a shadow force. Just like Robin Hood, he protects the little people. He never fights Saul, he never fights the king, but he fights the enemies of God's people who are trying to wipe out all of these villages. He becomes the protector of Israel, even though he doesn't really have the power to become the protector of Israel. He takes responsibility for the whole nation before ever receiving kingship over the whole nation. Ultimately, he would become king, but he would be promoted into a job he was already doing. You can tell who the honorable person is uh, because that person is always the, the first person to assume responsibility to fix the situation. And that, that person is the honorable situation. The merely, merely moral person will get hung up on blame. You know, maybe they'll call it justice or fairness or something like that. The moral person will, like, wage a protest against injustice. Um, but the honorable person will take responsibility for the victims of injustice. You see the difference? And David somehow knew that all along. The merely moral person will virtue signal. Do you know that phrase? I love that phrase. It's becoming popular in, in current culture. It's like all these people are, you know, what do I have to do to signal that I'm a virtuous person? Uh, in the old days, you know, in the Bible, they call it Phariseeism, you know. It's like, I, I want to look righteous. And looking righteous, I mean, the easiest way to look righteous is to point out who's to blame, and it's not you, all right? But to be responsible, well, that's, that's different, you know. That means you actually got to take care of somebody. Our job is not to point 
out how bad someone broke the rules. Our job is to manifest the principle behind the rules. The most important question in any situation is not who did wrong. The most important question is what's wrong and how do I fix it? You know, who's to blame? Well, you can handle that on the side or a little bit later. In David's situation, it became immediately apparent to him that what was missing in the scenario uh, was a concern for innocent people. It's like, man, Saul's not even concerned about taking care of his own people. He's not even concerned about uh, taking care of the priests. And you know what? I wasn't showing enough concern either. I was treating the priests with some disrespect. I should have given him a choice whether or not to help me. Something like that. Maybe I shouldn't have gone to him at all. So rather than play the blame game, what David does is he attacks the problem. Somebody should take care of the little people. Somebody should take care of the sheep. He's a shepherd after all. So he, de- he determines what the problem is, not who's to blame uh, for it. Uh, so that's the story of David from here on, that, on out. David begins to manifest sort of a kingly care for his people in, re- in direct response to a mistake he had made. It's sort of a, sort of a form of repentance. You know, repentance isn't just saying sorry for what you did wrong. Or, you know, repentance is living in a way that makes things right, that brings goodness to the world. Uh, so, uh, you know, David, David was facing a, a seriously evil king, right? And if King Saul was not a loving person, you know, what should David do? Attack Saul? No. If King Saul is not a loving person, the most important thing for David to do is to show love. You following me? Even with the vocal gymnastics? Uh, If Saul won't protect the people, then David would lead his band of outlaws to protect the people. I, I, I like this whenever I see it. Sometimes, famously, we've seen it in history, you know, uh, one of my favorite characters of uh, recent modern history uh, was Martin Luther King Jr. I love the way that he waged the, the battle for civil rights. If white people in spots around the country are, are arrogant and oppressive, then A, whites must be blamed, or B, somebody must manifest love and humility. And Martin Luther King chose B right? He preached not blame, he preached, preached brotherhood, you know, he, often borrowing the words of Jesus to do it, unsurprisingly enough. I love the way that Mother Teresa, another uh, famous uh, peace warrior, spoke, spoke about, I, I, I like the way she spoke about most things because she was so simple. In this interview uh, where uh, somebody was interviewing her, uh, a, a feminist was interviewing her about abortion rights, the woman's right to choose. And Mother Teresa just sort of cut through the whole d- debate and said, if you don't want the child, bring the child to me. Okay, you know, that's like taking responsibility for the situation in a way that just kind of transcends blame and right and wrong and stuff like that. I mean, she, she had it. And that's kind of what made 
Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa. You think about grave injustices in our own environment. You know, if a few greedy businessmen stole the kingdom of Hawaii uh, from, you know, indigenous rule, then the obvious thing is to blame and protest and and point fingers. Um, But one thing that Christians should want to do is to instead uphold the principle that got neglected in the first instance. We should show generosity. We should show respect. It's moving in the opposite spirit uh, of what happened. If your office is backbiting and slanderous and there are all these petty office politics, then you should uphold graciousness and servanthood because that's what's missing, right? That's taking responsibility for the environment of your office. You know, if you're having problem, problems in, in your marriage, and I know it's your spouse's fault, um, but rather than spending a great deal of time talking about who did what wrong, figure out what's missing and do that. And right there, that's the heart of all successful marriage counseling, uh, I think. In other words, to borrow uh, another popular phrase, at least it was popular for a little while, uh, be the change. You be the change, right? Don't be the blamer. Don't be the judge. Be the change. And if you think about it, Jesus talked about that a lot, didn't he? He had grave warnings against judging anyone for anything. But he said a lot about being the change. Don't, don't demand change. Be the change. Bible 101. Guilt can be useful sometimes in getting people to realize that a change needs to be made, but it's never more than a passing point in the kingdom of God. Blame can occasionally be a little bit useful momentarily, but it's never more than a passing point in the kingdom of God. And we're usually uh, more concerned with proving things aren't our fault than making things better. And I think that was probably a temptation that David faced in his moments. Like, wow, hundreds of innocent people were just killed uh, because I was hungry. And, and, you know, I told a little white lie to get me some bread. I really need to prove that this was not my fault. I really need to prove that I'm not murderous uh, because a lot of people are going to be thinking that I'm the villain in this. He just, he just waved that all away. He didn't give it uh, any time. And, and I have a word for that. Um, and it's a word that I think is huge in David's life, although it never really appears so much in Scripture. It's the word brash. I think David was brash. You know, at the point, he just didn't think very much about what people thought of him. He didn't think very much about his own guilt level. When he did something wrong, he would recognize it, and then it was over in his mind. He never wallowed in any sort of guilt or any sort of self-recrimination. He was, he was just brash. He just went back to swagger. Well, I made a mistake. Time to get back to work. I'm going to make things right. I'm going to make things right. Well, who are you to make things right, you wretched sinner? Forget that. I'm going to make things right. You know, he didn't play the blame game in his own interior. He was shameless. He was shameless. And that, I think, that was one of the keys to understanding uh, David. I knew, I knew another David years ago. David Williams uh, was his name. He was in a church. Uh, Sony and I went when we were just little kids. We were in our early 20s. And uh, 
and uh, I got to know him because we would play flag football together on the weekends. Uh, he was in his uh, 40s at the time, and uh, a good quarterback, big lanky guy, enjoyed playing with him. We had some fun. Uh, and then after we'd known each other for a couple of years, he got invo- involved with a, a much younger woman. She was, you know, about uh, 23, and you know, it was over 20 years between them, and you know, it's like, well, okay, maybe, but that's a tough, that's a tough relationship, David. And, and, and then he sort of went secret on it, and then they disappeared for a few weeks and then came back to the church and they were married, you know, one of those situations. And uh, the young lady also had a, a, a young son, a boy. And so uh, David immediately became a, a stepfather. Well, I mean, tragically and perhaps somewhat predictably, uh, that relationship did not go well. And within about a year, it fell apart and the young lady you know, just done some awful things, and, you know, and so there was sort of this debrief of the situation uh, with David, and uh, I remember talking to him. I don't know why I was the counselor, because I wasn't married at the time or anything, but, you know, we were buddies, and it's like, well, he, he said, you know, I obviously, you know, I should have seen this coming. Obviously, you know, I wasn't leading with my, with my brain or... <laughs> And uh, but now I have this situation. I mean, for a brief time, I was a stepfather, and I'm going to make this right. So for all of all of the rest of the time we were together, and even afterwards, I kept tabs on him in a little bit. He visited with that boy every week and would bring him to the football. He, he basically raised that kid. His mother got more and more dysfunctional. He took responsibility for the situation. And what was interesting about the situation is that when David would bring the kid to church, it was sort of like advertisement for what a dunderhead he had been, right? But he just decided to be brash. He just decided to be shameless. He just decided to not give a dang about blame. He just did the right thing and, and probably uh, saved a life as a result. That's the sort of thing that I'm talking about anyway. To close, righteousness is not about assigning blame, and repentance is not about wallowing in guilt. They're both about upholding godly principle and just doing the right thing, and that usually means taking responsibility for things, and this was a lot of Jesus's uh, message. Jesus very, very rarely addressed people's sin. He very, very rarely called out people's sin. Twice in all of the Gospels did he do that, other than hypocrisy, which he was fairly fond of talking about. Only twice, and in both those instances, it was like, stop sinning so you don't get into trouble again. (laughs) Um, Very rarely bothered with blame, but instead he encouraged people to look at a mess and to see in it the opportunity to display God's greatness. My favorite story about this comes from John chapter 9, where Jesus and his guys, the disciples, are walking past a man who had been born blind. He, he'd been blind since, since he came out of the womb, and a blind beggar. And so his disciples have a theological question in that moment, and they ask Jesus in John chapter 9, you can read it later, later who sinned? this man or his parents, that he should be born blind. I mean, their theology was, oh, you're afflicted with something? You must be a sinner then. God must be punishing you for something. But this guy was born blind. So they're like, hmm. If you're born blind, you're blind before you have a chance to sin. Maybe it was his parents' sin uh, that uh, caused his blindness. So this shows you where they were 
theologically speaking. And Jesus said, no, no, neither this man or his parents sinned that he should be born blind, but rather this happened so as to display the works of God. The translations say it in different ways. It's like, guys, you're stuck in the blame game. I see this as an opportunity to glorify God. And then Jesus, of course, heals the blind man. Completely different way of seeing the world. Assigning blame rather than figuring out who's responsible for this mess. Jesus is like, hey, I'm responsible for fixing it. You guys should be too. That's how you should see the world. So when things go wrong in your life, when you get some strife in your situation, you get some strife in your family, in the job, in your marriage, in your own heart, our instinct can often be to try to settle it, to try and make it go away by assigning blame as neatly and precisely and proportionally as we can as if that might help the situation or make us feel better. Instead, think along these lines. Here's the situation. Hey, here's how I might have contributed to the negative situation. But here's how I will take this opportunity to uphold the virtue that's been missing in this situation. And if you do that, then evidently you're a person after God's own heart. Evidently, you're a person whom God finds trustworthy. Evidently, if you do that, you're a person that people will rally around. They will look to you for leadership because there's spiritual power in that. Let's pray. We pray, Lord, that you would help us in our situations of strife. Uh, We want to do some repentance this morning, Lord. Uh, In the name of Jesus, we want to repent from judgment. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just help us um, sift through the ways that we have played the blame game. We have blamed them and wasted time and energy on that. Just give you a moment to deal with God on that. We all do it. Some of us have some gnarly situations, Lord. We pray in the name of Christ, in the tradition of Christ, that you would help us to be the change, even if it requires a miracle or two. Forgive us for our mistakes, Lord. Free us from our mistakes so we don't have to wallow in them. Guide us, Holy Spirit, by showing us simply the next right thing to do. I pray, Father, that this would be a morning where people just get unstuck from sticky situations.
They can go from being villains to heroes in the blink of an eye. Pray for the work of grace, which is what it would come to be called a couple thousand years later. In Jesus' name, amen.